One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. The Brexit vote, the Chilcot inquiry. It's been an utterly amazing period in British politics. Uh, There was a cartoon the other day that had a student saying, I'm doing politics and I've got a course on what happened between 8.30 and 12.30 on the 23rd of June. So it's been an amazing time and it has raised issues which Elizabeth Davis, producer, has put her finger on to do with the nature of our political system. What is your idea? (laughs) Well, um, I did a lot of uh, political theory at university. And so I've always been kind of quite interested, actually, in the design of democracy and the nature of democracy and that kind of thing. Um, And I have been very interested in, since the Brexit referendum, the number of people who would count themselves as Democrats, with a small d, you know, pro-democracy, that kind of thing, saying that the result of our referendum shouldn't count, that we should have a second referendum, that Parliament should nullify it. And and in particular, um, Damon Albarn, the uh, singer of Blur, at Glastonbury saying that democracy has failed us, um, which got a huge amount of applause (laughs) at Glastonbury. Um, And it's very interesting to me that kind of yeah, you've just had a vote of, of enormous numbers of millions of people yeah. and a very clear result. And he's saying that's not democracy. Yeah, exactly. So um, and there is this argument, you know, are referenda sort of properly democratic? Should Parliament be making this, these decisions or is that anti-democratic? And, and what is democracy? Um, and so, you know, this is a debate that's been going on for a little while. Um, it's not just about the Brexit vote. It's also things uh, like in the US with the, the rise of a lot of populist politicians and people getting upset about them. And is our democratic system really working? Well, it's a, it's a subject that goes back a, a very long while, 2,000 years or so, to the ancient Greeks. So it's been a very difficult week for me reading up on it all. <laughs> I've had 2,000 years of history to read up on. And, and nonetheless, very good topic and very relevant just this week. So let's have this uh, very interesting discussion we did on democracy entitled Power to the People? Question mark. Autocracy, theocracy, aristocracy, plutocracy, meritocracy, kleptocracy, that's thieves, and a new one in the political lexicon, corpocracy, ruled by corporations, and there's always democracy, the least worst option some say, but what are its limits and what kind of democracy produces the best outcomes and best reflects the popular will? Uh, This is Owen Bennett-Jones, and on NewsHour Extra this week, the implications of the Brexit vote, it has been... As disruptive an event in British politics as many of us can remember, the Prime Minister has resigned, the opposition party is in total disarray, there's talk of realigning leftist politics, but the anti-establishment electoral insurgency that caused all this is not just a British affair. There's Trump and Sanders in the US, an array of new nationalist parties in Europe, and further afield, is there any link between those movements and the Arab Spring protests against self-serving entrenched elites in the Middle East. Well, to discuss the current state of democracy around the world, I'm joined by Dr Rosalind Fuller, who's written Beast and Gods, How Democracy Changed Its Meaning and Lost Its Purpose, John Githongo, who rose to international prominence for his dogged attempts to highlight and reduce the levels of corruption in Kenya. We've got William Goldstone, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at Brookings Institution, That's a think tank in Washington, and he's a former White House advisor to President Bill Clinton and author of Democracy at Risk, How Political Choices Undermine Citizen Participation and What We Can Do About It. So that sounds interesting. And here with me in the studio in London, Baroness Helena Kennedy, a Labour member of the British House of Lords, unelected, and a principal of Mansfield College, Oxford University, elected or selected? Elected by my governing body. (laughs) Elected there. And chair of the Power Inquiry in the early 2000s, which looked at the state of British democracy. So let's just start with the question of referendums. And with David Cameron as Prime Minister, we've actually had three in the UK. It's quite unusual, don't normally have them. Uh, One to change the electoral system, one uh, on the independence of Scotland, no was the answer in both cases, and then Brexit, the answer was yes. And the European Council on Foreign Relations says that Now, in Europe, there are parties, populist parties, proposing 32 
different referendums in 18 different countries on a whole range of issues, including EU membership, refugee quotas and so on. And there is a question as to what rules need to be put in place as to when you have a referendum. Uh, the feelings of many in those, of those in the UK who wanted to stay in the EU were summed up by a musician at the Glastonbury Music Festival this year, Damon Albarn of Blur. Uh, I have a very heavy heart today because, uh, to my mind, democracy has failed us. Democracy has failed us because it was ill-informed. And I just want all of you to know that when you leave here, we can change that decision. It is possible. There we are. Democracy has failed, as he says. But, of course, many others think democracy uh, just succeeded, and including uh, US Secretary of State John Kerry speaking alongside the UK Foreign Secretary Philip Hammond. And while last Thursday's outcome was, as Philip said, different from what he hoped for, it was different from what both our governments looked for. It reflected, however, the will of the British people, and we respect that. So a failure of democracy or a democratic success. Dr Fuller, what do you think? Um, I would would lean more to the success side of that. I think that... What we see with these referenda is that we're instituting them in the middle of a representative system. So we're kind of shoehorning them into a system where political parties are very, very active, where we do have a media that is not uh, as diverse as it could be, and where money has long played a very large role in politics. So parties try to win elections in the short term. They're more concerned with winning seats uh, than votes, and they act accordingly when they campaign. And those campaign strategies tend to be taken over into referenda, where we don't just have kind of uh, a free vote uh, where everyone uh, sits at home and decides what they, what they think would be best for the country, but people get out and pour an awful lot of money into campaigning for it. And we see this with a lot of referenda in the modern time, that money plays a very, very large role. Um, I don't think it was the determining factor in this particular referendum Brexit that was recently had, but you can see that um, the trend is that who spends the most money uh, tends to win uh, referenda. So I think when we shoehorn it into a representative system, and especially when we only have referenda at very, very long intervals of time, they're not as democratic as they could be. It's not ideal. Still, I see it as an improvement on a purely representative system. So are you saying to make them work well, you need them like Switzerland the whole time? Even more often than Switzerland. In Switzerland, you can see that uh, money doesn't play a role as much. You can kind of see it kind of slipping up, although a great deal of money is spent on contesting uh, referenda in Switzerland. You can see it doesn't, the pattern holds through a little bit less uh, than other places. But I think, yes, even more often than in Switzerland would be ideal. Right. So that would be a lot of decisions devolved to the people. Well, I mean, Baroness Helena Kennedy, you're, you're in the British Parliament. I mean, the very striking thing about this referendum in the UK is that I think... I just looked it up. It's around 480 members of the House of Commons out of the 650 wanted to stay in Europe. And you'd find probably the same sort of disposition in the House of Lords. Overwhelming majority. Majority of parliamentarians would vote to stay in. So is that an argument for parliamentary democracy because they're so well informed, they understand all these issues, or is it an argument that they're completely out of touch? Well, you know, we have to go back to whether we think that representative democracy um, is a good thing or not. It's kind of interesting because we recently here in Britain had a, a vote in Parliament around assisted dying. The House of Commons voted against it. And we're told that the polling, although we don't trust polling anymore, but we're told that polling says that the majority of people in Britain actually think that in limited conditions that it's a good thing. Um, But Parliament, because it's about people um, voting according to their own conscience, made a decision which was to operate restraint in this, in in the interest of the public good. And uh, I actually believe that it is out of really good, high-quality debate and discourse that you get better results. I would wouldn't like to see, as Rosalind's suggesting, that we, we, we started um, having regular referendums because I just, I think that you have a coarsening of the public debate and we saw that recently, which isn't to say that I don't think that there is a place for, for them. I think there is a place when you're talking about serious constitutional issues because manifestos nowadays are just not good enough. You know, they're 30 pages long, they're full of every, every manner of things and some people are liking certain things in a party's manifesto and not liking others and it depends what rocks your socks.
box. So, you know, people go for the things that matter to them. But on something where you really want to know, do you want to recover, um, you know, sovereignty back to the UK? I think it was right to go to the... To, I mean, I, I, I don't object to it. I think it was the, the timing was completely wrong and it was done for the wrong well, reason. OK, but I mean, it was a referendum in 75 to go into the European That's right. Union. There's now one to go out, so presumably we could have... But everyone talks about a second referendum. We have a third referendum to go to go back in again. Well, I mean, what's interesting about this is that the reason for having this referendum this time was really for the Conservative Party to to sort out its own party problems. And that was not a good enough reason. That's the starting point. The second thing is, I would here um, agree with uh, Rosalind that, you know, you can't suddenly try, and and with John Kerry and with all the other people, you can't, having asked the public to to give a view, then saying, you know, half of us don't like it, I don't like it, um, but I don't think you can say, I want another referendum next week. And I don't think that challenging it in the courts is going to be very good for our judiciary or for um, uh, the, the, the role of the courts in our society either. I think that the only circumstance in which you could have a referendum on this again would be if there was a, some significant political change where you got the sense that, for example, if we really did sink into incredible recession very, very quickly um, and people were seeing massive loss of jobs, then people might want to go back okay. to the polls in order to say this was a disastrous mis- uh, and mistaken and misguided decision because we weren't given the full facts. John Kathongo, it's very difficult, this, isn't it? Because there are no rules for when referendums can be held. The 40 years between the into the European Union one and the out, and, and you know, Helena Kennedy is saying you shouldn't do another one soon, but what, I don't know, after 10 years... 20, 30, No, but we might do, you could do it within a year if, if we really found ourselves... Um, you know, <laughs> even a year. Can, can, no, but you could if there was yeah. a sufficient political change in that period for, for a sense to be given that, that people want a say again. Yeah. The point is there are no rules. And John Kathongo, how do you feel about that? And just in Kenya, would you like to see, see them working there? We, we've had referendums, and, um, and like here, usually, especially when... when Elite, you know, the question was asked. I mean, uh, is democracy failing? Uh, we put it the other way around. Um, sometimes it's it's leaders, it's politicians, and political parties that fail democracy. Especially when when the market has has let down large sections of the population, people retreat into the, the, the politics of identity. It, it 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 it's it's alluring. It's it's comforting for people um, in terms of explaining the the contradictions and the complexities that they see around them. And leaders will will, will jump onto. Uh, issues and 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 whip them up and then ref- referendums in that kind of context where identity politics is the one to which large sections of the population have retreated then you can have a very you know referendums can be quite destabilizing and really not be about the issues that are on the piece of paper that people are yeah. uh, casting a ballot on and then it causes great surprises and apparently you know a big disconnect between you know the, the governing elite and the, apparently the majority of people and that that's around the world so sometimes it, a referendum can be a mistake. And, and Rosalind Fuller, it just occurs to me, you're saying lots of referendums, please, but in Switzerland, do they trust the politicians any more than they do in America or Britain or anywhere else? Actually, they've got lots of referendums there. I, I wouldn't say they have lots. They they have a few. They have more than is common in other countries. I don't know if it really matters. If you are going to be able to have referenda frequently, then it becomes irrelevant whether or not you trust politicians. The trust doesn't need to be there. You act yourself or you act as a collective with other people. So it kind of removes to a large extent the necessity to place your trust in someone else. Mm. And, and William Goldstein, I'm taking you as our, our sort of constitutional theorist. So let me just ask you this. One of the points about democracy is minority protection. And referendums go in the other direction, don't they? Because it is majority rule. Very much so. And that's one of a number of objections that I have to referenda, particularly as a steady diet. Here are a couple of others. They are binary. That is to say, you either say yes or no to a specific proposition. For a lot of people, the proposition is probably poorly posed. They'd like something in the middle. And representative institutions are much better suited to finding and pursuing shades of difference as opposed to binary choices. And in large mass democracies, unlike the Greek city-states, you have an enormous proliferation of demographic differences, interest group differences, ideological differences, and representative institutions, I think, are much better suited for not only giving voice to those differences but somehow finding a point of equipoise among them. 
The other point is one that uh, Helena has already touched on, and that is that referenda are all too often final and largely unreviewable. They are instituted to settle a question. But it may be that settling a question once and for all is a very bad way of dealing with a question if you're going to muddle through and learn things at step two that you didn't know at step one. You'll want to play those back into your decision-making processes. But if a referendum is final, you can't do that. Thank you. Rosalind Fuller, let me just sort of – there are a number of points there. But one that really strikes me is that governance takes compromise. And referendums make compromise more difficult because they, they just draw a line. No, I don't. I don't think so. I do think that I do agree with a lot of uh, of what was said. And I do think that I myself don't propose that we keep our current system of uh, representative government and shoehorn referenda into it. I don't I don't uh, agree with that. I think we have to be focusing on how we can deepen democracy to give people more of a say on an ongoing basis. And I think that would have to go much, much further than just having referenda and keeping, for example, the electoral system in place. Uh, for example, as was said, referenda are very binary. They're very yes and no. I think it would be much better if we had citizen input on what was to be decided. I agree that it is necessary to make adjustments. But I would also say that a representative system is very, very ill-suited to making adjustments, because when you win power, you win power for four years straight, and you can do whatever you like. Then another party may come and win uh, power for another four years with a, a very different set of policies. So what we have in referenda is continually moving back and forth. Um, I also don't really see much evidence of representative institutions being uh, able to compromise very well, because we've seen that over the past 40 years, we've had a great split uh, between the well-off and the less well-off. We've had a great divide in inequality, yet for four 40 years, uh, despite the causes of this inequality being well-known, and despite it being relatively easy to deal with it, representative institutions have simply chosen not to deal with it. So I don't um, necessarily agree that representative democracy is all it's made out to be. And I do think that when I talk about, you know, having referenda, I view that only as kind of part of a deeper system of deepening democracy and giving people a more participative say on it on a daily basis. Let's go to Washington. Does representative democracy entrench self-interested elites? To some extent, yes. But at the same time, there are always possibilities for insurgent movements. And certainly throughout the history of democracy in America, that's exactly what has happened. And I have to say that as I look across the pond and then across the channel to the continent, I see very much the same phenomena at work. It's not clear to me that this is a crisis for democracy. This is a disruptive democratic moment, but democracy is always exposed to disruption. That's part of its nature. Sure. And Baroness Helena Kennedy, one reading of the vote is it's a victory for democracy. The people at last have managed to hold their leaders to account? I mean, as far as I could see it, this was really a kick in the teeth to more than the European Union. It was it was really people um, expressing their discontent with the ways in which globalisation has been impacting on, on their lives in detrimental ways. And I think that it was really not spoken in this language. I think it was that something was being said about neoliberal economics and the way in which uh, they have impacted on ordinary folks' uh, existences and the way in which they've developed a huge chasm between the people who are really at the top of the tree and get, make a ton of money, and the vast majority of people at the other end, and that's both the middle and working classes, who really feel um, that they're not being listened to. William Goldstone, let me come to you. We've just heard people saying that economics explains these insurgencies, but isn't there something else happening to democracy, which is a growing lack of trust in people who are meant to be neutral arbiters of decision-making, judges, scientists, and so on? Uh, they're getting undermined, aren't they? There has been a, an enormous decline in trust, not just in government, but in established institutions and authorities. And I would put it this way. After the Second World War, there was an implicit bargain between political and economic elites on the one hand and peoples on the other. This was certainly true in, in Europe and the UK and, the, and in the United States. And that is the people would delegate to elites, including their representatives, uh, responsibility for policies that would ensure uh, domestic tranquility, 
international security and economic growth that included most most people, if not everyone. And as long as the elite fulfilled its part of the bargain, the people were willing to extend a measure of deference to the decision makers. And it worked very well for about three decades, and then it stopped working. And people were being asked to defer to elites who were making bad choices. And at that point, there was a massive withdrawal of trust and confidence from governing institutions and everything that was seen as part of the elite stratum. At the same time, and here I joined forces with Helena and others, the changes in the global economy, which were not mitigated by political institutions, had the effect of driving a wedge between the people in the top 20 percent and especially the top 1 percent and everyone else. And so societies that had been growing together for decades began to grow apart. That exacerbated the mistrust and I would add resentment as well. And part of that came out in the Brexit vote, but we're seeing it here in the United States as well, and we have been seeing it for quite some time. Okay, so you see economics behind all this as well. Uh, Rosalind Rosalind Fuller, though, let me uh, ask about, yeah, there is this idea that that something new is happening, not really related to economics, but but this post-truth politics, you know, Obama is a Muslim. How many percentage of Americans think that? An enormous number. There's total lack of trust in, in what people are saying at the top of the system. And there is an argument that it's because with more debate, more democracy, democracy almost eats itself. Everything becomes contested. Well, I don't know if that's entirely true. I mean, I do agree that there are a lot of issues with uh, modern mass media, and that's one of the key differences between our democracy and ancient democracy. Ancient peoples had to meet together face-to-face. They had to get their news from each other. We get our news from uh, mass media, uh, from a few people who deliver sound bites that often go unquestioned. I would agree uh, with the other guests and say that I do think that a big problem underlying that is economics. We do have the issue that because of the economic divide, we have people who are essentially living two different truths. I mean, if we take Brexit, for example, it might be that someone might enjoy uh, a cosmopolitan lifestyle in Europe and be able to to visit various countries and enjoy that. They might have money invested in their pension and the stock market. For them, Brexit might be a very bad thing. They're not going to be able to enjoy those things in life anymore. Um, The stock market might crash. It might hurt their savings. For someone else, uh, it might be that they'll never see uh, be able to travel to those countries. Um, It doesn't matter to them if the stock market goes up or down because I don't have money invested with it anyway. So if we look at this, we see kind of two different truths of was Brexit a good idea or not. And it's not that those are spurious things. It's just that people have actually started to live very, very different lifestyles that are very, very hard to reconcile. And democracy does require that we live uh, more or less similar lifestyles. There can be some inequality, but there can't be this extreme level of inequality. Yeah. I mean, while I am absolutely clear that economics and economic methodology has been one of the major problems in all of this, I do also think other things are happening. We have much more educated populations who in turn are much more demanding of the the political class than they ever were in, for example, my parents' generation. Um, That acceptance and deference, which has been so much part of, for example, British society, particularly because of our class system, that is being eroded all the time. And as people are more educated, then they're much more questioning. So there's that going on. There's the other thing, which is, of course, our media has changed. And uh, we know that there are interests operating there too. But I want to talk about the political parties. The political parties that really were established in that post-war period that Bill Goldston spoke about, they, they are under a challenge just now because what political parties do is that they aggregate the interests of whole, of, you know, whole groups of people. The difference, I think, nowadays is that um, you know, it's harder to do that. In the 1950s, what people were wanting was that they wanted education for their children, they wanted to be able to have a nice home and security of tenure in work. And of course, aspirations now have become very varied once we've got over those basic things and people want very different things. And the, for parties to speak to people, they have to themselves evolve and I don't think that they've evolved well enough to deal with those very different aspirations of different There's, there's something else relating to the parties, isn't there? That, you know, they, they, you say they find it more difficult to aggregate people's desires but they all end up 
with the same solutions. I mean, well, there's no choice. Well, they have all ended up with the same solutions. They all drank from the same fountain, which was neoliberal methodology. After the end of the Cold War and so on, they decided that there was only one way to go and that markets, you know, free markets were the answer to every maiden's uh, uh, dream. And the truth is, they're not, because what they do is they leave whole sections of society behind. And so that very beautifully described um, contract between the peoples, that has been trashed. And I think that that has to be reconstituted again if we want to have good democracies. We'll be back in a moment, but just to remind you, do let us know what you think of the programme or indeed give us topics that you'd like us to look into. You can email us at newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. You can tweet at bbcnhextra. And if you enjoy the programme, there's one edition every week, one topic, then we've got the podcast and there's a good back catalogue of very good topics there and you can subscribe to it so it comes to your device uh, every week, once a week. That is the BBC NewsHour Extra podcast. Welcome back to NewsHour Extra. We're discussing the state of democracy with Dr Rosalind Fuller, who is based in Dublin, uh, the human rights lawyer Baroness Helena Kennedy, William Goldston from the Brookings Institution in the United States, and anti-corruption campaigner from Kenya, John Githongo. Now, let's just go back to the question of referendums for a moment. And Helena Kennedy, are you worried that we just heard a you know, comment that money comes into them? And if you think about these American referenda referendums in California and places, I think, you know, fundraising is part of the story there. Does that distort the picture? I'm a great believer in that you have to have more devolution. You have to let people make decisions closer to where they are and about the things that affect their lives. And we're, we're, we're much, we, we over-centralise all kinds of things. The money thing is a real corrupter of democracies because one of the things that has happened when Rosalind says, you know, we've known what's wrong with the economic system for, you know, for quite some time now and that the poor, you know, not even the poor, but large sections of our society have been left behind, that we've cut into social security and protections for people, protections in employment in order to make create flexible workforces. We've actually denuded our societies of trade unions and so forth. And so in doing all of that, look at, look at who's done it. It isn't just parties of the right that have done it, but parties that were traditional the protectors of ordinary folk have done it too. And it's because they've been got at by the money men. Big money has corrupted um, the ways in which even political parties work. And that is a source of anxiety for me, and it should be for everyone. Well, that, that really does move it on then from referendums, because John Kithongo, you have spent your life trying to stop this kind of uh, you know, money-buying politicians, haven't you? And I don't want to be discouraging for your valiant efforts, but I think you would have to conclude it's been an uphill struggle and, and frankly, the money men have got the better of you often, haven't they? It, there is sometimes no difference between the money men and the political actors, especially when the democracies are nascent and still developing. Those who have the money can buy entire chunks of policy and render large sections of the population uh, irrelevant to the policies that are being implemented in their regard. And this is especially since the fall of the Berlin Wall. We adopted multi-party politics, a liberal democratic model, and we've seen the role of money and the convergence between commercial and political interests become a lot more powerful. And cracking that has become a major challenge. But we do have these... uh, disruptive insurgent forces that are coming up as part of the democratic uh, process. Now, they're they're not necessarily comfortable and cause surprises and economic dislocations, uh, sometimes even political and social ones, but I think they are a necessity because it forces then leaders to reassess and recalibrate the entire democratic system. But the, the issue of money remains unresolved, especially when we have such tremendous concentration of wealth and power in such tiny sections of our populations. Yeah, now John, we wanted also to talk about exporting democracy, which you know has been the effort of the United States and in the you know the post-colonial period by Britain, and you know frankly it's, it's not gone very well. I mean India may have changes of leadership according to elections, but lots of places don't. And it's not just money 
that has caused that to fail, is it? Or, or So can you analyse for us why that export of democracy has been so difficult? There are certain values that underlie the model. You know, basic freedoms, liberty, people's freedom to associate, to freedom of speech, etc., which are valued dearly. You know, that, that a country like the US uh, espouses that, that are valued dearly. But they have tremendous contradictions. And as a result, you find that there is an increasing questioning in large parts of, of you know, many countries in the developing world beginning to question this democratic model that essentially imposes oligarchies who are very effectively globalized and leaves out large sections of the population. We have instead of democracy what I see described as competitive authoritarianism, where it's basically a one small elite and every five years they change chairs between same groups of families. And let, that is not a good thing. Let me put that to William Goldstone. I mean, when you look at the United States efforts, let's, we just had the Chilcot inquiry here in the UK. And, you know, that project to get democracy into Iraq clearly failed. But it wasn't, was it, because of a disillusionment with oligarchic politics in the West. It was to do with sectarianism, identity politics, or you know, a, a tradition of authoritarianism. I mean, it was quite complicated, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I would point out, however, that since the Second World War, there has been an enormous expansion of democracy around the world. The number of countries who are rated as wholly or partly democratic has really surged. You may not want to call that an export of democracy, but there's no question about the fact that, say, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fact that transnational democratic institutions were available had a very substantial role to play in the choices that nations emerging from Soviet rule were able to make. And so I think it's wrong to reduce the phrase exporting democracy to democracy at the point of a bayonet because when democracy is successfully exported, it's very rarely that way. It can only be that way if nations are entirely defeated in wars that they deserve to lose and as a result are totally reconstructed by the victors as Germany and Japan were after World War II. But that is the exception, not the rule. Rosalind Fuller, how do you reflect on this idea, maybe it's the wrong phrase, exporting democracy or at least democracy spreading and, and you know, the fact that so many countries seem to have more authoritarian systems than, than many in the West would approve of? Yeah, certainly. I think that the one-size-fits-all uh, approach really hasn't worked. I think a big problem is that we have conflated the idea of democracy, which, uh, let's remember, does mean people power. Democracy is supposed to give people power. It's not just a matter of holding elections. Elections are meaningless onto themselves if it, it is just trading chairs between an oligarchy. So when we have exported democracy, we haven't looked at uh, things such as, is the society we are exporting this to, as it were, a very divided society? Is it a, is it a society that already has extreme economic inequality? Representative institutions and elections exacerbate inequality. Um, they exacerbate divisions in society. So if you are going to impose them on a society that may already be deeply divided along whatever lines or may already have serious uh, economic inequality, you're going to see it fail very, very fast. Uh, if you see it happen uh, in a society that is more egalitarian, it will last for a longer period of time, but it will always ultimately undermine itself. Now, years ago, I, I think that we, we wouldn't really even be having this conversation because there wasn't much of an alternative. You had to go and meet in person sometimes to make decisions. So in a certain sense, having representatives made sense. I think only uh, in the recent past with the advent of the internet can we really begin to seriously discuss more participatory democracy. Okay, Helen Kennedy, and then we'll hear we'll hear an example of that actually from from California. But yes, well, I, mean, I mean, look, I'm a human rights lawyer, so I I would say this. But you see, I think that there are fundamental yearnings that people have, and it doesn't matter where in the world they are, but they actually know what it is to suffer pain and humiliation and to not have freedom and so on. And so, the, the, I don't think it's anything to do with exporting. And I would really uh, encourage uh, Bill not to use that, even when we're talking about people sort of looking to other places for models of how they might exert their freedom. But what we do know is 
says that voting ain't what it's about. On its own, it doesn't deliver anything. And what we know is that there has to be a freedom of the press. There has to be an opposition party that operates freely too. That there has to be freedom of association. There has to be proper legal systems. The rule of law is fundamental in all of this. And so, you know, the fact that some places they're claiming themselves as democracies because they have a voting system is not what it's about. And we have to keep saying that. And so I really feel that we haven't made a very good fist of persuading the world that democracy is a good thing if we think that voting is what it's all about. And I'm afraid the whole travesty of the Iraq invasion, that whole business of thinking that, you know, we know how to people ought to be running themselves has been disastrous. People themselves have to get to that place. And yes, one can be supportive in many other ways. But, you know, the idea that we were going to kind of, you know, sort people out by taking out the strong man was really not the way to do this. And uh, it saddens me that um, Tony Blair still insists that somehow he did the world a favour by getting rid of Saddam Hussein. My God, the price has been high. Let's just pick up on this idea that technology might offer new ways of managing democracy. And we are going to hear now from Pia Mancini, who is based in California, but has a very global outlook and has been involved in Argentina in particular. And she's the co-founder of Democracy OS and the Net Party. So first of all, what is Democracy OS? The whole idea of Democracy OS, now Democracy Earth, is to build a platform on which we can trust different people for different topics, right? And they can make decisions for us where we can say like, okay, I'm going to delegate on you my voting for all matters regarding healthcare, but I'm going to delegate on someone else for all matters regarding the environment, etc. These people do not necessarily have to be your elected representatives. Well, if they're not your elected representatives, how will they have any authority to take a decision on your behalf? We want to start experimenting with a new way of making those decisions. So that's why we build a political party. We run for elections with this idea that the person who win a seat would vote according to what all of the citizens decided on this online platform. This is the net party in Argentina. And and so, yeah, I mean, that's like a political party. But you're just saying it's a, a party in which the representative will have closer links with his or her electorate, right? Right. And they're always going to vote according to what the sort of the decision is made on this on an online platform. Yeah. But then on the other side of it, I don't quite understand how your arrangements work, because if you can have people discussing stuff online and even reaching a consensus view or having a vote on on what Mm -hmm. should happen. But how does that translate into a political decision? Well, nowadays, the, the only way to do this is to find sort of connectors, right, to find political parties like the Net Party who are willing to make those decisions in the existing political system according to what citizens decide on this online platform. But the the whole idea of Democracy Earth is to think if we can can find new ways of building political institutions. Okay, but you'd still have political parties or, or not? Well, I think at this stage, yes, because we need to find sort of those connectors. But the philosophy behind this is that democracy is a work in progress. And that, yes, this political system that we have right now is the political system that we inherited. But that doesn't mean that it's the only political system that we can design or create. Yeah, yeah no, I see what you're saying. And, and, and to get some sort of engagement online, great. But I still can't quite understand how you can get that into political decision making in a democratic way. We, we try to find a way to do exactly that. We needed to build a political party, which is what we did. Um, but we wanted to radically change the way that political party makes it, its decisions, right? And that's where the, I think that the sort of big innovation comes in. There we are. That was uh, Pierre Mancini. Now, Dr. Rosalind Fuller, you sound splendidly open-minded on matters of how to develop democracy. But, I mean, that doesn't really add up, does it? Because it's just going to be people online which, as you know, leads to very sort of extreme, violently expressed often views in sort of little bubbles. And I mean, that, that doesn't work for, for decision making, does it? Uh, actually, I think it's a terrific idea. Um, this is exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about in uh, using technology to deepen participation. I don't agree that that people commenting online are subject too much to this extreme or extremely violently expressed opinion. Sometimes people do do that. I agree with that. But mostly they don't. And mostly uh, reading the comment sections of articles is often more informative than reading the article. I mean, this kind of engaged democracy is basically saying that everyone has something to contribute to a decision and that together 
together, when we act together, we're often wiser than acting as only a very few individuals. So I think this is really a really good uh, way forward. So I think this kind of demonization of the average person as some kind of, you know, ignorant, racist, uh, ill-informed person is, I think, uh, going too far. And I really do think we do have to give ourselves a chance in participating this way. So I think it's a great tool. No, I'm afraid that thereby fascism lies. I absolutely believe um, in the whole business of participation, but I'm a jury trial lawyer. And over the years, I've come to believe very, very strongly in the power of people coming together, hearing good evidence and coming to conclusions about serious matters where they rise to the occasion and perfectly regular ordinary folk can do that brilliantly so I have this is not not about thinking it's all about elites ordinary people make good decisions but they need to be well informed and doing things online leads to ugly behavior and it also leads to rather coarsening of the quality of the debate and the evidence that people are hearing certainly this becomes like those television programs where people vote in you know who dances best and who makes the best cakes and so on it's perfectly good for entertainment it is not good for the ways in which we govern ourselves William Goldston, can you mediate? (laughs) I'd like to put a couple of ideas together. The idea of representatives as being delegated, deputed, if you will, to exercise their own best judgment in particular circumstances that might not have been anticipated at the time that they were chosen made a lot of sense in the 18th century. I continue to believe that it makes sense today. And so I am very much opposed to the idea that representatives should simply do as they are told by their constituents. Often they should, but sometimes they shouldn't. And one of the virtues of the representative system is that it enables a certain flexibility in representatives' behavior. Right. Well, a clear division of opinion is emerging. John Kithongo, where do you stand on it? I mean, we have tried the introduction of digital technology in terms of trying to increase the integrity of uh, our election processes, and that hasn't worked very well at all. We've learned that you you can't digitize integrity, and when elites have captured political processes, they'll use the technology to consolidate their hold on power. Um, Hold on, John, just to understand that, are you saying that, because I mean, I have read this, that these systems are very... Very easy to corrupt and and you get false results. Absolutely. Exactly. They're very easy to corrupt, especially at the tallying process. Um, they, they actually make the rigging of elections a far more uh, delicate um, and, and graceful thing, that the results uh, look real, especially when, they, when the competition is very close and uh, lots of elections get stolen and it deepens people's dis- mis- mistrust of the election process, political parties and political leaders. However, when government is taken closer to the people, as Dr. Goldson was was saying, you know, through uh, different methods of devolution, not, I think that's the most authentic kind of democracy. And I've seen some of the most successful elections at the at the local ward level, where people are basically scribbling onto pieces of paper and putting them in a box. But because the community knows they know each other, there's a high level of trust within that community. The result is one that is accepted, and that's the most important thing about an electoral process, that those who lose walk out and say, yes, we lost. They accept the outcome. Let's just go to Rosalind Fuller. You've come under attack there, Rosalind, on on a number of grounds. But these online elections can be fixed and that is in their nature and that the good thing about having representative democracy is that people can consider new circumstances and they can take informed decisions. One can consider new circumstances as well if one is allowing people to participate on an ongoing basis. You know, I'm not proposing asking people what they think every four years. True. I think it's a good idea to ask people much more often. So that I don't think that particular criticism uh, applies. As far as what I understand Democracy OS to be, this is not merely about having an election online. I mean, online elections are held in many places in the world. Uh, for example, in Estonia, they've been held for more than more than 10 years. They're going to start voting online in Canada. This is a different question. Just replacing the voting system with online is, I think, very different than the kind of thing Pia was talking about, which allows allows people to participate and decide on specific decisions online. The basic question that it comes down to is, do you think people are capable of making decisions for themselves? Or do you not think people are capable of making decisions for themselves? You know, but as ignorant as some people might be about how the EU functions, I think that EU officials are very, very ignorant about how most people live, that they ostensibly rule over. So that's really what it boils down to is, do you think people are capable of making decisions 
or not. And we, we call ourselves a democracy. So apparently we do believe people are capable of making those decisions. If we don't believe people are making those decisions and we do think that people need to be ruled for their own good, then I would suggest we just call this by its true name, which is an oligarchy. I think that there's, there's very interesting stuff in all of this and what's come out of it is, for me anyway, a strengthening of my belief that there has to be devolution, that you do encourage participation, that you do use new technology in order to hear as many voices as possible. But we have to recognise that platforms, including uh, technological platforms, can be captured and captured for all sorts of negative purposes. What we really want is a revitalization and reinvigoration of the social contract that was originally described by uh, uh, William Goldstone at the beginning of this, where between politicians and uh, the public, there has to be you know, a renewal of trust. And that can only be done by transparency, by openness, and by a reinvigoration of all those good things. But I really believe very, very strongly that judgment is important, well-informed judgment based on good evidence. And I'm afraid uh, referendums don't give you that. And that's why we have to revitalise our parliamentary systems and get them to work better. Can I, can I just ask you, I'm going to ask you all to reflect quite briefly, because we're coming towards the end of the programme, on this fascinating idea of having the representatives chosen on a random basis, so that you have a lottery and that people are selected for maybe a two, three, four-year period and that in that period they are expected to inform themselves on the difficult issues that they would face and to take uh, decisions. And in this way you get rid of the entrenched elite, you get rid of a lot of the interests that people at the top have, and you have a genuinely representative sample in the Parliament. I mean, I know, Rosalind, that you, you, you've written about this, so I'll come to you at the end. Let's start with you, John Cathongo. Do you think that's an attractive idea? It- it is interesting. I'm much more inclined. I come from a situation where identity politics is, is very strong and elites capture the political process. And therefore, the tendency has been to perhaps to move in that direction and to look at uh, different types of representation that are have got more cultural resonance. So getting rid, for example, of the first-past-the-post system in, in our part of the world and having a more inclusive process where we have party lists, proportional representation, that's the kind of thing that the people are having. So in this first-past-the-post means that um, elites can manipulate people along sectarian and ethnic lines, uh, turn them into blocks, which is very divisive and polarizing and easily militarized and, and that kind of thing, and, and to get rid of that, to have you know party lists and proportional representation instead. This, on what you just suggested, very very uh, fascinating, and I think that we're going to have to debate these issues as you know the kind of challenges that are thrown up by the Brexit and the result of the recent referendum and the kind of populism we're seeing across the West. Thank you, William Goldson. Just think how much money could be saved in the United States if you just had a lottery instead of, <laughs> instead of these amazing <laughs> elections you put on. Oh, I don't know. Uh, election expenditures are one of the most effective forms of income redistribution uh, that, that we put well, For once the politicians are paying out. <laughs> Absolutely. And not only that, we now have billionaires complaining that they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to no purpose. But to get serious for just a minute, the great American political scientist Robert Dahl, recently deceased, uh, originated the idea of what he called the mini-populace which is a group of some hundreds of citizens who are a reasonably representative microcosm of the American people. Some friends of mine have taken that concept and have tried to operationalize it by, in effect, doing what Helena suggested is at the core of the jury system, namely structuring a deliberative process, making sure that balanced, fair, and full information is available to all of the citizens in this mini-populace and then allowing them to make decisions on that basis. And I think it would be worth experimenting with the idea that these citizen juries would be empowered to make certain kinds of decisions subject to the procedural safeguards that are built into this deliberative system. But a simple free-for-all based on a random lottery is not something that I would be very comfortable with. OK, well, well uh, Helena Kennedy is in a, in, a, in a House of Parliament that is selected according to hereditary, some people literally by birth, and others by religious office. And and others like yourself by sort of good works in society. So it is the most 
unrepresentative body imaginable, isn't it? It, it is. It's true that it is, except that it was very interesting that um, I saw that um, work had been done at Harvard on, on the um, parliaments around the world and they found that the House of Lords Chamber had the best quality of debate of any of the other parliaments. So, so it's interesting. Well, it tells you that it, there's something to do with the fact that lots of people have come from different life experiences because you've got many different people from the world of education or the world of business, the world of law, the, the world of work, trade unions, etc. So so um, that there, there is some richness in that. All I would say about, about it is that I have long been a, um, a believer that it had that its way of creating itself was not satisfactory, and that we had to um, uh, modernise that method. And actually, we did look at the whole business of lot. And I think it would be worthwhile having an experiment of saying, let's look at having a quarter of the people who were basically basically taken out of the electoral register to come in for a certain periods of time. And it would it would be rather interesting to see. I mean, some people would say, well, look, I don't want to do it. You know, I'm not interested in doing that. But others might find that it would be an interesting challenge. I like, you see, Robert, um, we've we've been hearing different things. First of all, John mentioned the business of proportional representation. I firmly believe that we have to move to that kind of system. First past the post does not uh, deliver um, the right kind of democracy as far as I'm concerned. Too many people don't have their voice in Parliament. But then I also think that we should be looking at um, the whole business of deliberative processes when things are affecting a particular community that you draw together if you like, an expanded jury. And uh, and when we, I chaired the power inquiry, that was one of the suggestions that we made, um, that there should be many more, an enrichment of democracy. The answer to democracy's problems is more democracy. Dr Rosalind Fuller, last word to you, because I know that you, you have thought about this idea of random selection. And in fact, they did it in Ireland in a, in a, in a, convention, a constitutional convention, didn't they? Yes, we had a a constitutional convention here in which randomly selected citizens were asked to debate together with representatives on how we should change our constitution. And unfortunately, of the 18 recommendations for constitutional change, only two of them were ever put to referendum. So it was seen as very successful as an exercise. But unfortunately, the results of that were not translated into uh, decisions to be put before the people. Our constitution always has to be changed by referendum. We can't change it any other way. However, as far as sortition goes, yes, I think it's a very interesting idea. I think it becomes more viable the greater the number of people that are involved in it. Because I think if you have a small number of people, even though they don't have to campaign to get elected, it's still relatively easy to bribe or corrupt a very small number uh, of people because we have, of course, um, problems with money before uh, people are elected into politics. But we also have problems of people being kind of uh, rewarded after their political career is over for actions that they that they undertake there. So I think that's an issue if you talk about a very small number of people. Um, another issue is, of course, the legitimacy. If there were only a small number of people and they deliberate and let's say they come up with a um, enlightened approach to uh, a topic, but the majority of people disagrees with them, I think you're going to have potentially a very difficult time uh, implementing that. So I would say I would have agreed with what John said earlier. I mean, decisions have to be accepted and to kind of sit on your mountain and say that I would have decided things differently because I'm much more informed and I'm much more educated and so on and so forth. Um, it might be all well and good, but if you have to bring people along with you, then sometimes you are forced to compromise or uh, do the second best for a period of time anyway until maybe you know, you're able to make your case for why, why the first uh, point was an error. So I think those are, there's still uh, some concerns with, with that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Rosalind Fuller, Baroness Helena Kennedy, William Golston and John Kithongo. Thank you all for a very interesting discussion and lots of uh, fresh ideas there and uh, just some of the subtleties of what democracy actually means. If you liked this week's programme, then uh, do get the podcast. That's the BBC NewsHour Extra podcast. You can get one edition downloaded to your device every week. And we do try and respond to all your messages, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk and on Twitter at bbcnhextra. But that's it for this week. So thanks very much for listening. And from Owen Bennett-Jones here, in London. Goodbye.